I won't break out into a solo now because that would empty the building of the 10 people we're allowed. I hope uh, that those of you who are at home or wherever you may be joining us uh, online, join in singing praise to our Lord. By the Holy Spirit, we who belong to Christ are united. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit in this world, even if at this present point in time, um, we are not uh, as physically visible as that temple as we might like to be. Last week in our, um, in our look at Peter's first epistle, I, I took us through a survey of a significant chunk of chapter 3 and chapter 4 with Peter's very practical counsel about how we respond as the people of God in this age to those who push back against our faith. Along the way through those two chapters, I, I passed over a, a section of chapter 3 not because I'm a coward uh, who's afraid to talk about what's there, but because that passage uh, is so rich and poses certain questions that it deserves uh, a treatment on its own. And so I begin reading at chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. In that state, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Someone has well said, for any sermon, there, there are three basic questions that, that people might ask that the sermon needs to answer. First, what does it mean? Second, is it really true? And third, so what? I, I think it's fair to say that, that those five verses that I just read trigger all three of those questions. What does it mean? And for parts of it, is it really true? And so what? I want to suggest today that essentially here, we have Peter making one basic point with a couple of divinely inspired digressions which create for us a couple of interpretive challenges. Let's think first about the basic point. His basic point 
is, is one that, that he's really been making in a variety of ways throughout the epistle, and that is we who believe in Christ follow him from suffering ultimately into glory. He has just said in, in, in verse 17, it's better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, that in itself triggers a question. Actually, this is maybe the third interpretive challenge. To suffer for doing good if it is God's will? Is it God's will that people suffer for doing good? Is it God's will that some people persecute others for doing good? This, this is a reminder that when we read in Scripture about the will of God, it doesn't always have exactly the same nuances. There are at least two different senses of the will of God that we find in the Bible. Here, we have a reference to what theologians call the, the providential or sovereign will of God. The will of God that frankly encompasses everything that occurs in history. As Paul puts it in, in Ephesians 1, God is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. And so if we ask, is it the will of God that sometimes people suffer for doing what is good? Peter clearly says the answer is yes. But only in that one sense of the will of God. But it is a reminder that, that nothing happens in this world that is outside of God's sovereign providential will. God's sovereign providential control. In that sense of God's will, it includes COVID-19. It includes Hamas and Israel shooting missiles at one another. It includes the Nazi Holocaust. That's only one sense, though, of the will of God. In most places where the Bible talks about the will of God, it's talking about what we call God's moral will. God's revealed will, God's commands, God's instruction about the way to live that, that is in obedience to him and his nature, doing what is good. So we, we, need, to, we need to grasp and affirm the idea of God's sovereign providential will over all things, but we must never use that as an excuse for somehow accepting passively violations of his moral will. When it comes to our decision-making, it is not God's sovereign providential will that is relevant. What is relevant is God's revealed moral will. I, I can remember um, a couple of times at an elders meeting in our church when we were talking about something that we thought ought to happen, and another one of, of my fellow elders said something like, well, well, well if, if God wants it to happen, it will happen. 
At which point I spoke up and said, well, that's only true for one sense of God's will, isn't it? Maybe the God actually desires that we do this, but we might fail. That's one of the points at which the others thought to themselves, why did we elect him an elder anyway to let him raise points like that? So we need to understand, the only thing we know, what we know with certainty about God's sovereign providential will is what has happened in history. Now we know God has told us about certain things that are going to occur, wars and rumors of wars, nation rising up against nation, apostasy in the church, things like that. But we should not take that as reason to say, look at all that fighting over there in Israel. Isn't that great? It means prophecies being fulfilled. We should never look at it that way. We should think in terms of God's moral will. Our task is not to fulfill God's predictions. Our task is to obey his commands. But Peter says, in God's providential will, sometimes we will suffer for doing what is good. Okay, I've, I've wandered off into the text before the text today. Maybe, maybe another day we'll explore those nuances of divine providence further. But what Peter wants to say is, when we suffer for doing what is good, if we suffer for our faith, we are following in the steps of our Lord because, as he says in verse 18, Christ also suffered. Now, when he suffered unjustly, it was the righteous one suffering for the unrighteous. Christ was put to death by his unbelieving fellow Israelites through the hands of the Romans for preaching and living the kingdom of God. He suffered for doing what was good. And we are called to follow him. Now, of course, as Peter has made clear back in chapter 2, the suffering of Christ, the righteous one for in the place of the, unri uh, the unrighteous, was unique. He, he, he says back there in chapter 2, as we saw, we are called to follow in his steps and, and to suffer even as he did without paying back evil for evil. But we cannot suffer in exactly the way he suffered because he suffered to make atonement for our sins and as Peter puts it here, to bring you to God. We, we've already sung about that today. And, and all that reinforced for me what I was already hearing and actually singing about in the car as I drove to Guelph from Kitchener today. So I was listening to... Um, recording of songs from uh, the, one of the huge Sing conferences sponsored by Keith and Kristen Getty. And, and so I hear Matt Boswell leading thousands and singing his wonderful song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. 
And then I hear Johnny Erickson Tata leading those thousands singing a cappella. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And so we've sung about that today already, Jesus, the Lamb of God. We've offered our thanks, Jesus, thank you. To say thank you to the Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, for, for offering his life in our place to bear the wrath that we ought to bear, well, thank you hardly does justice. But we say what we can. But Peter says he suffered for us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, to put it in Paul's words. But his atoning death wasn't the end. And so he says he, would, he, he died to bring us to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in spirit. Now, the NIV translation that I'm looking at says made alive in the spirit, capital S, and so it assumes that the Greek word pneuma there denotes the Holy Spirit, um, who perhaps it's assuming this is about spirit raising Jesus from the dead. I'm going to depart from the NIV here and suggest the ESV actually gets it right, recognizing the dualism is between Jesus' body and his spirit. And though he was put to death, physically, in, the, in, in his disembodied state, in his spirit, God empowered him. And he empowered him. Uh, it's something short of resurrection. That comes up in verse 21. And so he was empowered in his spiritual state. Now, Peter will go on to say, that even that's not the end of it. By the end of verse 21, he reminds us that our salvation purchased by Christ comes through his resurrection. And the resurrected one has, has ascended, has gone into heaven, and is exalted at God's right hand. He died. He was empowered after death. He was raised bodily from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He's exalted in heaven at God's right hand. And Peter says, absolutely all authorities in the heavenlies and on earth are subjected to him. Angels, authorities, powers. The terms authorities and powers are sometimes used elsewhere, especially by Paul, to denote even, even the evil powers in the heavenlies. In other words, nothing happens in your experience or mine that is not under the authority of, the providential authority of, the exalted Messiah in heaven. Every authority and power is subjected to him now in principle, providentially, and one day, as Peter has already told us early in this epistle, at his return, 
all powers will be visibly and clearly under his authority. And so we follow him from suffering into glory. If we suffer with him now, we will reign with him then. That's the wonderful promise. All of that is clear here. But there are a couple of things in this text that are, that are not as clear. And so, uh, in my attempt to be a faithful teacher of God's word, I have to talk about what does it mean? So, the, the first of the obvious questions is, when, when Peter says in verse 19, he went and preached to the spirits in prison, what is that all about? What does that mean? Have you ever wondered what Jesus was doing on Holy Saturday? He died on Friday, was raised on Sunday. Have you ever wondered about Saturday? Maybe we have some insight into that here. But it's odd. He was put to death in the flesh, made alive in, in the spirit, in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. What's going on here? Well, there, there are various suggestions that interpreters have made about what, what Peter would be talking about here. One is that, that he was offering salvation to the, the, the spirits of the dead, to, to persons who never had an opportunity in this life to respond to, to God's message of salvation. Now, that, that, raises, that would raise all kinds of questions. I mean, the Bible's pretty clear that what we do in this life determines what's happening in the age to come. Beyond that, when, when Peter refers back to those who were disobedient long ago in the days of Noah, while Noah was preaching righteousness, he is not talking about people who never heard the message from the Lord. He's talking about people who did hear the word of God and rejected it and went on living their incredibly evil lifestyles which brought about the universal flood to wipe out the human race except for those eight people on the ark. So, so Peter isn't, he, he doesn't have in view here people who did not hear the word of God and had no chance to be saved in this life. Second possibility has been suggested by some, and that is that, that between his death and resurrection, Jesus in his disembodied condition went to the, the realm of the dead. Uh, the Hebrew Sha'ol describes it, the, the Greek Hades, the same thing. 
We, we sometimes use hell to describe that. Then he went to Hades to, um, to preach the good news to, to Old Testament saints, righteous persons, believers of the Old Testament times, who were in the sphere of the dead and, and, to, and to take them from there to heaven. Actually, this is what is suggested in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, that, that in between death and resurrection, Jesus was preaching to the Old Testament saints, telling them the good news that now they were going to leave their compartment in Hades and be taken to heaven. That doesn't work either. Because Peter says the, the people in view here are the spirits who were disobedient long ago. These are not Old Testament saints. These are the disobedient. Well, some interpreters think it's just really wacky and odd. Talk about Jesus between death and resurrection, somehow preaching in the realm of the dead. And so they would say, no, what we have here is this, that back in chapter 18, we ought to read made alive in the spirit, in the Holy Spirit, in whom the pre-incarnate Christ was preaching in the days of Noah to the people of, of Noah's day. And so the preaching here actually happened back in Noah's time. Now, I mean, that, that could make sense, except what, what he says is he, he preached to those who were formerly disobedient long ago in the days of Noah. In other words, the, the disobedience happened back there, the preaching happens down here later. So, so I would suggest, along with many interpreters, I, I'm tempted to say I, I would suggest, along with those who are right-minded on all points, but that would be a pretty arrogant, um, that what we have here is, is Peter affirming that between death and resurrection, Jesus was preaching his victory over sin and evil to, to the spirits who were in prison, and the spirits are, are the angels who sinned in a bizarre way back in those days. Now, here's why I, along with others, come to that conclusion. In the Bible, when we, when we have a reference to spirits without modification, like we don't have anything like the spirits of certain people, just spirits, normally it refers to angels and not human persons. And... The term prison here is a word that, that is used in, generally in Greek for the underworld, for the abode of the dead. And, and there is evidence that angels did sin in Noah's day in a special way. To go back to Genesis 6, the beginning of the chapter, we read that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took them for wives. 
and they produced a hideously evil generation. The term sons of God is only used a few times in the, in the Old Testament. And other than here, it's used in Job, and in Job, it denotes a heavenly court of angels. And, and you have sons of God and daughters of men. So it looks like these sons of God are not humans, they're angels, who apparently took on human bodies, male human bodies, functioned as male human beings, and produced a very evil generation. They, because they were rebellious angels. Now, I know that sounds bizarre. It, it is bizarre, actually. But in, in the epistle of Jude, chapter, verse 6, he says, the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, they abandoned their own domain, they abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. And then he goes on to say, in the same way as these, referring back to those angels, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. And so he links the sexual perversion of Sodom and Gomorrah to the angels abandoning their proper domain, which seems to be a linkage back to Genesis 6. So it appears that Peter is affirming what was, in fact, a, a common Jewish tradition, and that was that Genesis 6 is, in fact, talking about angels who rebelled against God, took on human bodies, produced a very evil generation. And Jesus went to preach to them, not to offer them salvation, but to declare his victory. In other words, as we've already sung, the Lamb of God who died, the righteous for the unrighteous, is also the Lion of Judah, the conqueror of all God's enemies. And so normally in the New Testament, when this verb for preach is used, the content of that is, is the, the gospel offering salvation. But, but the gospel is, is, a, is a message that includes all the good news about what God has done and will do through Christ. Think back to Acts 2, day of Pentecost. This is Pentecost Sunday, by the way, an appropriate time to read and think about that text. And, and in Peter's message there, he declared Jesus the Messiah was put to death by the hands of wicked men, but God raised him from the dead, exalted in heaven, he's poured out the Holy Spirit as he promised he would do. He is exalted now at the right hand of God until the day he comes to make his enemies a footstool for his feet. So the good news declares what happened in the death and the resurrection of Christ and in his heavenly exaltation, and in his coming again as judge. It declares God is the victor through Jesus, the resurrected Messiah. 
And so it appears that on Holy Saturday, Jesus, in his disembodied state, was making that very point. So in, in all of that, Peter has referred back to the days of Noah and the great flood in, in which he says only a few people, eight people, Noah and his family were saved through that water of the flood. Verse 20. And so that, that makes Peter think about something else in Christian experience that corresponds to that water, and that's the water of baptism. And so he says in verse 21 that, that this water points us to baptism that now saves you also. Even as those eight people were saved through the water of the flood, which floated the ark while destroying the unbelieving world, baptism, he said, now saves you. Now, some of you are wondering, did a Baptist preacher just say baptism saves you? What in the world is that all about? Does baptism really save? The wonder is that Baptist preachers are ashamed to say what the Apostle Peter wrote. <laughs> But Peter makes clear what he means and what he doesn't mean. Notice he says, baptism now saves you. Not, not the washing away of dirt from the body. In other words, it's not like there's power in the physical ritual. The water doesn't become magical with its powers. That isn't the point. The point is, ba baptism saves you because of the, the inner reality that takes outward form in baptism. Now, here again, I'm going to argue with the NIV translation. It renders it not, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. The Greek word here is not used often, and so the NIV translators opt for the pledge of a good conscience. In other words, in baptism, I pledge to be a disciple of Christ, I pledge to live with a good conscience. Now, that, that is happening in baptism in one sense, but, but the, word, the, word, the word is related to a verb which always means to ask about or to ask for. So I, I would side with the translations that, that render it as the appeal for a good conscience before God or the request for a good conscience. Namely, the sinner's prayer expressed outwardly in baptism. You see, Peter's point is baptism saves because faith saves. Faith is the attitude, the, the absolutely necessary attitude Faith toward Christ and the gospel, which is the means God uses to bring us into the sphere of salvation. But we're embodied persons, and, and we understand that the attitude of faith must be translated into action to, to sort of make the experience of salvation real. 
it, it, it can be done in a variety of ways, but the divinely prescribed way to definitely translate faith into action and to say yes to the gospel is baptism. Think, for example, back to the Great Commission. Jesus' final words on earth before ascending to heaven, in which he commissions the apostles, go and, go and make disciples of all the nations. That's the, the basic command. The manner in which you make disciples is baptizing them into the name of the triune God and teaching them to obey all the commands of Christ. In other words, you, you bring people into the sphere of discipleship via baptism when they say yes to the gospel, and you help them grow as disciples as you go on teaching them what it means to live as a follower of Christ. And then remember how Peter worked that out on the day of Pentecost. After he declared the truth to his fellow Jews, saying to them, look, you, you've rejected your Messiah, had him put to death by the hands of wicked people. God raised him from the dead, exalted him in heaven. He's poured out the spirit on believers. He reigns now in heaven and he's going to come again and make his enemies a footstool for his feet. And the unbelieving Jews recognize they are the prospective footstool for his feet. They've rejected him, and so they say, brothers, what are we going to do? Peter did not say, bow your heads and pray. Now, there would have been nothing wrong with that. What he said was, repent of your unbelief and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is seen as the way faith takes tangible expression and experientially, we recognize, we are assured that our sins are forgiven and, and the Holy Spirit is, is ours in dwelling and empowering us. And then he says, save yourselves from this unbelieving generation. And the way they responded was to be baptized. That's the way Peter describes their saying yes to the gospel. That's the way Peter preached it. I mean, he can say baptism saves. He can say save yourself. Now, ultimately, he makes the point, this salvation is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no power in baptism itself. There's no power in prayer itself. The power is in Christ, the Lamb of God, and the Lion of Judah. And so, in the song we sing, which, which, catch, which reflects on words of the Apostles' Creed, he descended to hell but was raised up to reign. It's through the resurrected Christ that we are saved. 
baptism or prayer or raising a hand or walking down an aisle, any kind of the outward action is the way faith comes to tangible expression. But salvation, it's God who saves ultimately. God uses various means to enable us to experience that. Baptism is a crucial means for that. And so I, I do say to you, if, if you believe in Christ and the gospel and you haven't said that in baptism, you really ought to. Ideally, it happens right at the beginning as a kind of initiation into discipleship. But if for whatever reason it's got delayed, it can still happen and it can still be the means God uses to assure you that you have died and risen with Christ. So this is a fascinating passage in so many ways. It would be tempting to simply end it with that focus on baptism. And, and that would be truth worth speaking. But as Peter reminds us, the point of baptism is to point us to Christ. The one who died to bring us to God, atoning for our sins. The one who rose as the firstborn from the dead, the guarantee of our resurrection, giving us hope. The one who is exalted now over all powers in heaven and earth, and we will share in his glory in the end. And we need to remember that, Peter says, when we suffer now. Others may tell you, others in fact are telling us regularly in our time and place, that those who are seriously believing Christians who are committed to following Christ and obeying the authority of Scripture are on the wrong side of history. Peter says they will be proved wrong when the risen Lord comes to declare the true verdict on all of human history. If we suffer with him now, we will reign with him then. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Scripture's reminder of the fullness of the good news. The good news that the Messiah died to atone for our sins, was vindicated when you raised him from the dead, is now exalted in heaven, so all the powers of this universe are subject to him. Nothing that we suffer now is outside of his providential control. And we have and we affirm the good news that he will come again to judge the living and the dead, to bring us into his eternal kingdom in the new heaven and new earth. Lord, enable us in a fresh way to believe all of the good news today and to proclaim it faithfully. For the glory of Christ, our Lord. Amen.